First uh, Peter chapter one, looking at uh, a couple verses this evening. When we look at America and we, we start to wonder, you know, the decisions that are made, the struggles that are made, the, the thought process behind said decisions, it's, uh, it's really easy for us to be frustrated. And there are a lot of things that sometimes we can't control and it, it irritates us. And when we look to uh, the culture as a whole, we come to this idea and we understand that pluralism and toleration in America, it really has caused many to simply be blown about all around the seas of what we call relativity, that there's no concrete, firm answers, that to, for you to even come to this idea that you believe that you have a concrete and firm answer is just ridiculous. And so we, we find ourselves accepting everything and anything. And we, you have to, if you're going to hold to that idea of uh, this idea of pluralism, where there are multiple avenues of truth, that there's multiple opportunities where we can have multiple uh, varying, different, I don't know how many different other words I can use that all mean the same thing, that they're all true. Well, you can't, you can't have two conflicting truth claims and both be true. It's just, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. But in America, we sort of come to this idea where we don't want to speak in absolutes. We want to look and we want to say, it's okay for everybody to hold all these different, we're going to be tolerant of multiple truth claims. In fact, you can see that in some different, different venues. Um, for example, in Star Wars. I'm not promoting Star Wars. I'm not saying if you like it or if you hate it. I'm not, I'm not doing any of that. What is really interesting is there's a moment in the, in the, the series where Anakin Skywalker, who's going to become Darth Vader, the ultimate bad guy, okay, he, he, looks at, he looks at his master and he says, either you're for me or you're against me. And he does it very absolutely, very matter-of-factly. And his master, Obi-Wan, looks at him and says, you must be a Sith, which is the evil, the evil people. You must be a Sith because you speak in absolutes. And what the underlying truth that, and because of the New Age perspective and the, the pluralistic toleration of George Lucas and those who write, write some of them, what they were getting at, an underlying truth that they were teaching is that only the people who are evil deal in absolutes. Well, that's, that's a fundamental problem for us, isn't it? Because we deal in absolutes. We look, and the Word of God is the, the ultimate absolute. And so as we go into dealing with ethical decisions in America, as we look at how they're done today, it concerns me that there is no way of st- establishing a moral directive a direction, uh, those, and, and those who are doing it, they don't have a way of doing just that. To those with no way of establishing a moral directive are the ones doing just that. I just read my notes, it would go a lot easier. Um, they're the ones. There are people making decisions for us in our cu- culture, in our country, who don't have a moral directive. And so we find ourselves struggling with that battling with, I don't agree with where you're going, what your directives are, and there really is. I mean, when we fundamentally get down to it, there is no way of making ethical decisions binding apart from the fact, the belief in a special revelation and a sovereign God. What I mean by that is you can't, you can't, if you don't believe that there is a God and he has spoken, then what moral ground do we have to stand on? Because then it's just my opinion versus your opinion. We need something that we stand firmly on when we're making decisions in our life, when we're making those choices. 
And so apart from having the word of God, and apart from having a God who is sovereign of all the universe, we have nothing that can, can be binding. And that's part of the dilemma and part of the struggle we are facing as believers in our culture, is that the people who are making moral and ethical decisions are not bound by the scriptures. They're not submitted to a sovereign. And so it brings hardship. In the, I mean, we can look historically. You remove God and remove his word, and what happens? I mean, some of you fought that good fight for many years trying to keep it in the schools. And then it gets pulled out, and we've seen historically what happens. You do that to our society, what's going to happen? We can look, look back to Europe. You remove it out of, and where's Europe at? And I mean, as Europe goes, so goes America traditionally. And so it concerns us. Who's making, how are we making the decisions? How are we making decisions in our life? <coughs> as believers, we find ourselves secured in the hands of a revealing God. And what I mean by that is a God who has spoken. He has told us what this world is and what this world is going to be like and how to live in his world. And so as we have this God whose character and his words chart the course for our decisions, we have to look and say, in my decision-making process, in my choices that I make in life, am I seeking to follow the sovereign one and follow what he has revealed in Scripture? And so Peter is going to, to start on that journey. He's going to, in verse 13, he's going to look and he's going to say, therefore. And as Pastor Tony talked about this morning, and every time you read the Scriptures, Whenever you get therefore or wherefore, uh, wherefore, gird up your loins. Whenever you see wherefore or therefore, you, f- you ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? What's the wherefore, therefore? What, what is the purpose? And it's pointing you back. So, I mean, we can look back in just a quick review. We've seen that we are God's chosen pilgrims. We are begotten of the Father. Verses 1 through, 1 through 12 talk about all of this. That we have a living hope. That we, are ha- we have this untouchable and secured inheritance. That we are being kept by the power of God. And that he is the one who is, is keeping us and guarding our inheritance. That one day, as we're with him in heaven, we will be there. So we have all of this in God. And Peter is saying, because of this great salvation... And all the benefits that go with this wonderful salvation and being one of God's elect. He says, because of that, therefore, he's going to say, we're going to do some things. And when he's going to give this, this ethical mandate. He's going to say, here's what you need to be doing. In fact, he's going to give three commands in the entire passage. And he's going to look and say, okay, I want you to do this as believers. But what's really interesting, when you look through scriptures, Theology prompts our ethics. You, you, it's not just what do I think I want to do, but it's what does Scripture say, and then how do I align what I want to do with Scripture? So theology always prompts ethics. The exhortation to live godly is always rooted in God's waving work, saving work is what it's supposed to say, in God's, in God's saving work. Notice the therefore. So he's going to give us these ethical these, these moral dilemma, decisions to do. But what is it based on? The fact that we already have experienced this great salvation. Look down in verse, uh, verse number uh, 15. But as he which has called you is holy, so be holy. Before he even says be holy, what does he say about you? That you have been called. That's one of Peter's ways to say, and we'll talk about that in a second, that you're saved. So 
our, our decisions are rooted, our ethics are to be rooted in theology. What God has done for us in Christ is always the basis of how we should live. And to confuse the order brings us into a works righteousness. I don't do these things so that I, may, that I merit righteousness. I do these things because righteousness has been imparted unto me. And so Peter's looking and saying, why do we live the way we live? Why should we be who we are? Why should we act the way we are? Why should we make the decisions we do? He says it is all rooted in Jesus Christ and what Christ has done for us. So whenever we're making decisions, whenever we're facing theological and ethical decisions, we start first with our theology. Then we go to our ethic, what we're going to choose to do. Because there's going to be a lot of things in life we can't control. But Peter's going to look here and say, you know what? When we get to chapter, the end of chapter 2 and 3, there's going to be times when you're going to have to work through areas you cannot control. But he's like, let's talk about for a second areas you can control. Let's talk about those things which you can do to help your life be right with the Lord. So we leave out, and and to leave out God in the decision-making process is just a pragmatic faith. It's just simply, okay, I'm going to do what I want to do. I still believe in God, and God is all good, but I'm really not going to consult him in his word. I'm going to choose to do how I feel it works, and it becomes very pragmatic because then all of a sudden you want to do what you want to do. They want to do what they want to do. We want to do what we want to do, and it's just, well, this works for us. We have to make what works for us work according to God's word. The great salvation we have should really prompt us to live godly. And so Peter's going to seek to help us to, to learn how to live, how to, how to go about this, how to make these good decisions and choices, making sure that God is pleased with the choices, the decisions we make. So what does he say? He says, first of all, he says, live mindfully in light of your future hope. Verse 13. He says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The command that's in this verse, there's actually one command. The command is to hope, or to set your hope to the end. Now, the other, there's two other words in here that, that have the force of being a command, but they're not commands. Peter is looking and saying, we need to first live mindfully, in light of our future hope. How do we do that? He says, let me help you. You do it first by preparing your mind or preparing our minds for action. That's what he's talking about when he says, gird up the loins of your mind. We're familiar with that idea of those who would wear the the robe or the tunic when they're trying to move in haste or go into battle. They would, they would reach down, they would grab it up, they would knot it up and tie it in their belt, which would allow their legs to, to move more freely. Hope does not come without disciplined thinking. Okay, he's looking and saying, you need to, I need to begin to prepare for action. Prepare for the battle that may be coming. How do we do that? We do that by preparing our mind, by thinking right. It is a, it is a, a righteous thinking. Thinking really does not happen automatically. I mean, if you have, if you have teens... Those of you who've had teams, you know that's true. Thinking does not happen automatically. You're like, come on, think about this. Well, I didn't think about it. You know, it's like, come on. Work through the process. But that's expected because they're immature and they're maturing. I often said for a long time, what got me through a lot of years of youth youth ministry is that I would rather be working with those who are 
immature and are supposed to be immature than those who are supposed to be mature and are actually immature. And it got me through lots of years of youth ministry saying they're supposed to be, they're teens. They're learning the process of critical thinking. They're learning the process of theological thinking. That's supposed to happen. Well, Peter is looking and saying, hey, we want to we wanna make sure that we are living right with God. We need to be thinking and living mindfully in light of it. It takes effort. It takes concentration. It takes intentionality, as Pastor Tony alluded to this morning, that you, it doesn't just happen to read the Bible. You have to be intentional about it. Be, be with specifics. Study. Study to show yourself approved to God. Look and get into the Word and make an effort. Why, do, why would we do that? Why would we study theology? Why would we decide to pick up some books about the Bible and read outside of, the, you know, outside of church? Because we need to be preparing our minds so that when decisions are coming— when ethical and moral d- dilemmas are facing us, we have our minds girded, ready, prepared for battle, prepared for action. He then goes on, he says, be sober. The idea here is be self-controlled in our thinking. So as he, he looks, he says, you need to have complete clarity of mind, resulting in good judgment. So you prepare your mind, you gird it up, you're doing reading, you're doing study, you're being intentional. And he says, and do it with a clear thinking. He's using, he's using a, so, a sobriety term. He's saying, just like somebody who is drunk is completely influenced in another way, he's like, you need to not be that individual. It's not a, it's not a passage against drunkenness, but the Bible is against drunkenness. It's a passage that's saying, you need to be the opposite of that individual. You need to be clear-minded, focused, having that intent. We cannot be dulled by the reality of God. To look and say, yeah, we know God's there. We know God's out there, but really I I can't see him. I can't hear him, you know. But that was, remember earlier in the passage, that was the thing that Peter noted the believers for. He said, "You, you haven't seen him and yet you believe. You don't see him right now and yet you believe. And he's looking at us and he's saying, when we live in our lives, for the believers in, in Asia Minor right now that are going through this, what Peter's writing to, saying you're going through all these trials and all these difficulties, remain clear-minded. Remain focused on the reality of God because we can easily become anesthetized to the attractions of the world. They look great. They look wonderful. I want them. And I can be very easily lulled and just chill, sort of going that way, and it's all good. And I find myself wanting to do that more because I become dull about the reality of God in my life and I become entranced by the, by the things of, of this world. There's a, there's a ride down in Disney that I just, it's one of my favorite personal ones. It's not a thrill ride or anything. It's Peter Pan's, Peter Pan's flight, Peter Pan's journey. And the reason I like it, I just think it's a really neat, they do this interesting thing on how they get, they mess with your perspective, because you never really go up or down, but what they do is they make things appear further away, and then they make things appear closer, and it looks like you're going up and down, and you're going all over. And I love how they work with perspective. And Peter's going to look and say, okay, you're supposed to be thinking mindfully. But he's like, we've got to work on our perspective when we're doing that. When you're going through trials and difficulties, it's really easy to see something right up in your face and not take the long look. And what does Peter say? He says, we set our hope. And where does he say? He says, this is a hope that has a perspective. It has an end game. It has a long-term view. It's not looking at everything right up close, but it's saying, okay, I know the trials. I know the struggles. They're all right here, but I'm going to take the long look. He says that we are to the end of the grace, he talks about in verse 13. 
hope to the end of the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's already told us what that is. It's our salvation that is going to, that we're going to fully experience when Jesus Christ reappears. I like what uh, one of the commentators said. He said this, this is not a flight into the dreams of the future. It's not an irrelevant opiate to dull the pain of today. Rather, our hope is a careful evaluation of present behavior in light of future goals and unseen realities. He's looking and saying, we don't just have this hope just to say, oh, it's going to get me through the pain and the suffering. He says, I have a hope because I'm looking to the glorious appearing of my Savior. I have a hope that one day I will be, and I know I will, and it's rooted in the reality of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, that one day I will enter into the gates of heaven because of what Christ has promised to me. In a sense, it's the saving work still in process. He says that you are going to be hopeful and you're going to continue to set your hope on the fact that one day, because I've put my faith and trust in Jesus, he's going to finish that work in me. That one day, as First John talks about, that I will not have to worry about the sinfulness in my life. That that battle, that struggle will be no more because I'll be in heaven and that, that battle, that nature that is within me will be gone. And I won't, I won't face that. And so we set our hope. When we are thinking and making decisions now in our life, we have to make moral and ethical decisions. We need to be thinking and living mindfully in light of that, that one day I will be in heaven. And so because of that, how do I live? Peter goes on, he says, live mindfully. And then he says, live wholly in light of your spiritual family's heritage. He, he, he unpacks it here. We, we can quickly jump because it's really easy for us to just say, be holy because I am holy. But look at look what Peter does. The command here is be holy. Okay, it's one of the three commands in the entire passage. That when you see it, it's like you are to be holy. That's, there's no way around it. That's what we are called to be. We are part of this family. And this family is very interesting because we have our family heritage. He says, as obedient children... Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. So he's going he's gonna to talk about as a family, as part of God's family, I am begotten of God. We've learned that. We are rebirthed. We are regenerated through, Jesus, through God, through the Spirit. We are to do God's will just as obedient children are to obey their parents. So as we look through making decisions in life, we have to line it up with what our Father, our spiritual Father is saying we should do. I think it's really neat. It's saying we belong to a family that we are dependent. Our children are not independent. They want to be independent, but they are dependent. And as a child of God, I am dependent upon him for his grace, for his strength, for his mercy, for his power, for his wisdom. I need all those things that God offers to me, but I can't do that on my own. Holiness is not just about me pulling myself up by my bootstraps and being the person that I, there, there's a dynamic where I have to take some initiative, absolutely, but I also need God's help, God's strength as we go about that. We see God's warmth. He talks about a father here, the care that is shown. And so Peter is highlighting in the fact that we are these obedient children He's going to highlight that we are part of this family. And there is a father who has the supreme authority to give directive. There is a father who has given directive. And so we now have to ask ourselves as children, are we being obedient to the father? And Peter's saying that's what holy living entails. 
is my obedience to the Father. But he says, not only do you have this family heritage, but you have a former heritage. Look at what he says down in verse 18. For as much as you know that you were redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. The idea of redeemed is that I have been liberated. I have been ransomed. I have been brought, bought with a price. I have been set free. My, my chains are gone. I mean, I am, I am completely unshackled from my sin because God has saved me. He is, the wrath of God no longer abides upon me because Jesus Christ has redeemed me. I have been bought and I have been bought with a price. The traditions that it talks about here, it talks about the traditions from your father. The traditions were inherited. They were, they were passed down. It wasn't something that we, oh, whatever, they don't care. It's just some weird family. No, these, were, these had great value. The word signifies that there was an intense value or longing, but they have no lasting worth because what does he call them? They're vain. They're feudal traditions. They were inherited, and they were conveyed from generation to generation. We know sin is passed down from generation to generation. And so the habits, the longings, the desires that we have, Peter looks at them and says, hey, you had this former lifestyle. You had these former desires, these vain conversations, and you've been set free from that to this new family. So now as I'm in this new family, I need to live in light of my family's heritage. Not my old spiritual family, but my new spiritual family. Not my old father, but my heavenly father. And so Peter looks, and as he goes, he's going to help us understand by giving us a contrast in verses 14 and 15. He says, as obedient children, not fashioning yourself according to the former lives, but whenever you see that, that helps you out. It helps you know, hey, there's a contrast going on here. But as he which has called you is holy, so be holy in all manners of conversation. So negatively, he says this. We are to separate ourselves from the evil desires, the goals, and the goods of this world. He's looking and saying, this was what your lifestyle used to be. Not fashioning, or some of your translations may have, not being conformed. It's only only used two times, this word. And everybody knows the other one. Romans 12, okay? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the second time that word is used. Peter says, do not allow yourselves to be conformed or to be fashioned or to be pressed into the mold of your old heritage. He says, your desire is going to be that. And that pressure is going to be great. And as we see our culture go further and further away from God, that pressure will be greater for us to simply conform because it is easier. It is far easier to simply go with the flow and to do what the world says than to say, no, I'm not going to get pressed into this mold Because my heavenly father, my new family that I am involved in has said no. And here's what the scriptures say. And so I can't do that. Now look what he says. Don't be fashioned to your former lusts, to your desires, as as it talks about here. That there were these things that we did desire. And we still do desire. Some of you have, have lived much longer and much stronger in the faith. And yet you would still say there's still moments of temptation. We, we, fa- we face that. We battle it. So he said, don't let that press you into the mold. And that, I think it's really interesting. Peter talks about your desires. 
There's a personal dynamic here that there are going to be things that you struggle with, that I struggle with, that you don't struggle with. And he says, your personal desires, some of the things that you're going to want to go back to, you're going to long to the addictions that you once had, that you are battling through. You're going to, don't, don't go back. He's looking and saying, you have this victory, you have this ability through your, your new father. And that's why it's sometimes we have to be really careful when we start talking about holiness. That holiness is not just simply, if I give you a list of 10 or 15 things, if you do these 10 or 15 things, you're holy. And if you don't do these 10 or 15 things, you're holy. And as long as you can check off the list, hey, we're good. Are there lists in Scripture? Absolutely. Are, some of the, are the lists beneficial for us? Absolutely. But we have to be careful that we just don't say, well, if I just do those things, then I'm all good. He's looking and saying, as you have to make moral and ethical dilemmas and decisions, you're going to have to look and say, wait, according to my lusts, my passions, my desires. Okay, I have to look at that. That was an old one. What does my father say and what does his scripture say? So we have to be really careful of just saying, hey, 10 or 15 things and you're all good. And yet at the same time, Scripture does give us lists, so just be careful. Because our ungodly desires, let's be honest, they beckon us. They tempt us to depart from God. So instead of conforming to the old ways, Peter says that's the negative. He says we must refuse and we must choose, and that's where the but comes. Here's the contrast, here's the positive. To help us understand, he says we are to conform not to the way of the old, but we are now to conform to the character of God. That's the contrast he gives. He says the character of God is obviously different than the character of your old self, of the old world, of the old ways. And so he says the battle that we have when we're making moral and ethical decisions in our life, when we're looking at our world and having to stand for righteousness, and we have to look say, wait, I need to make sure that my choices, my beliefs, they're conforming to the character of God. Because he who has called you is holy. Grace, once again here, precedes demand. God says, I have called you, you are saved. And so now, therefore, because of that, you be holy. Notice who the pattern of our holiness is. It's not me, it's not you. It's not, it's not what a church has listed out in a stipend of doctrines. Our pattern of holiness the mold we are supposed to be pressed into is God. He is the one who is ultimately holy. And so as we talk about holiness, holiness is not just stay away from sin, sin bad, ooh, ick. Yes, sin is bad and ooh, ick. But it's also a separation to the ways of God. There's that negative and that positive dynamic to holiness. That as I push sin away, I need to fill it with something. I put off, put on principles throughout scripture. That as I put off this, I need to put on Christ. That as I turn from lying, I need to put on truth. So separation from sin, but also separation to God. It is a loving perspective that says, I love my father. I want to be obedient to my father. I want to follow the ways of my father. And so I'm going to separate from that sin and I'm going to separate myself to God. So like the father, like the son, there are so many things as my son continues to grow, that I look and go, man, there is no denying him. He is mine through and through. And I, I love it. I, I love just the goofy things that he'll do. The way he sa- his sarcasm, I'm like, it's got to be from his mom, you know, because it would never come from... I love his wit, and I just, I laugh. And I see it, and I'm like, yeah, 
He's mine through and through. And I'm so thankful for that. And every once in a while we hear the, you know, the phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? But then every once in a while we're like, yeah, I think that one hit the hill, bounced off the root, rolled down the hill and went. And you're like, what happened? Well, that's not the son we want to be. That's not the daughter we want to be in relationship to our heavenly father. We don't want to be the one that, yes, I say I am this, but then everything in my life reflects that I am that. Like the father, like the son. So I am to be like the one. What he's saying here is with the the holiness. Yes, there are things I need to do, but what he's telling us, Peter's saying, live up to your calling. Live up to, you are called to be holy. And God says you can be. He says, so live up to that. Live in light of your family heritage. So as we make these decisions, as we look to what God is for us, as we have to face the dilemmas as as our culture and as our government, they make all these different decisions that we are not in favor of from a biblical perspective, that we can articulate that, that we can show why, and we can say, because this is what my father says I am to do, and it is better for me to obey God rather than man. And we have to look and we have to, to wrestle with those, those truths. So I live in light of that holy holiness. So I am to be, ma- uh, be holy. Notice what he says. In all manner of conversation. Yes, Tony made fun of my walking this morning. Absolutely. And I, I could not believe I did that. It was, it was a pretty funny moment. I'm like, it made absolutely no sense to me. But that's what he's saying here. In everywhere you walk, in every part of your lifestyle, anywhere you go, Seek to be holy. Because there is no sphere of our life that is outside God's dominion. There is no area, nowhere, no way that we can say, well, this is mine. My finances are mine. My job is just mine. My social life, well, that's mine. No, all of that is still under God's dominion. So no matter where I go, God, Peter's telling us, God is telling us, in all of those conversations, lifestyles, That's what you need to be. So we need to separate our living to match God's character. And so Peter says, I'm not just saying this off my own own whim. What does Peter say? Why am I telling you this? Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And he quotes out of, somewhere out of Leviticus. There's like three different places and every commentator has a different opinion on which one it was. 19.2 seems to be the general population, but uh, consensus. But again, we're not just going to go by general consensus because if we just go by general consensus, we end up with America. And uh, so you end up back, what he says, Leviticus 11, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 20, all of them talk about God is holy, so you be holy. God's presence in the midst of his people demanded that Israel be holy. God's presence in the midst of our lives demands that we work to live up to the calling that we have been called to, the holiness of God. Peter has absolutely no concept at all of a life in which we simply give mental assent to theological terms. That we just look and say, well, we know that, but we don't live it. We don't carry it out. He says emphatically with an imperatival force, he says, you be holy. It's not a recognize that holiness is important. He looks at art and says, art, you be what you have been called to be. 
So as we're walking through life, we have a responsibility to live in light of our family's heritage. And then thirdly, he brings up the third command as we look at 17 through 21. He says, And if you call on the Father, who out of respect of person judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning. The word pass is the command here. It also, you, you may have conduct. Conduct your life in this manner. And he says, you're going to pass, and how are you going to do this? You're going to do it in fear. Conduct your life in fear. Now, we don't, we don't like that idea because there's enough things right now to be fearful of. And we're like, wait, what is, what is he talking about? As he talks, he says, if or since. He's not, he's not trying to introduce doubt here, like, ooh, is God my father or is God not my father? But he's reminding us of the nature of God. He's saying, since you call him father, now let me remind you of who he is. He is the absolutely impartial judge. He does not, he does not look and say, well, I like those people better than those people, so I'm going to deal harsher with these people, and I'm going to let them have a pass. He looks and says, Peter says, God is the impartial judge. And what does he judge? He judges based upon our actions or our deeds. So he's looking and he's judging as we go here. And Peter's using judgment to spur us to direct our choices toward God. He's looking and saying, hey, God does judge. God is there. Now the question comes up, like, what is the judgment? I'm already judged. My sins have already been judged by God looking at Jesus Christ, he took that upon me. So as a believer, is it talking about the potential of, uh, I'm trying to think if I have it, I don't have it up there, so we'll talk about it. Is he looking and saying, well, you're going to be judged because your, your actions don't match up with being a Christian. So then the question is, is it they're not saved? And so that is the judgment. That Everything you're doing in your life does not match that because good works is a result of good faith. And so everything you're doing, the way you're living, all the actions do not match up. So the judgment will be, you're not truly saved. You're going to hell. Depart from me. I never knew you. Possibility. Is it for believers that shame when we stand before God wanting to offer more and God looks and discerns at all of our deeds and say, you know, you did all this, but this, is what you're, this was your motive. This was the way that you acted. This is why you did this. And so there's that loss of reward that we as believers can offer to God. And shame, we don't like shame. Isn't it true? I mean, most of us don't want to come here and just openly repent of our sins and all the things we're battling with every week because we'd feel shame. We'd, we'd hang our heads we, we would naturally do that. And so is that, a, is that a motivating factor? Absolutely. Is it the working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Could be. All of those put together. There's not a clear definitive. All we know is this from this passage. Peter's looking and saying, God judges. And God looks at the way we live and God looks at the way we act. And he says, because God impartially judges what we're doing, how we're acting, the idle words that we're speaking, he's saying, pass the time. Conduct your life uh, with fear. So he says, there is a fear that does not contradict confidence. Because what we can look at with fear is sometimes we'll look and go, well, fear immobilizes. Fear makes me panic. So because I'm afraid of God, I'm not going to do anything because I don't want to upset God at all. So I'll just not do anything. That's not what he's talking about. 
And is he just talking about a simple, just have a great reverence for God? I th- there is a huge dynamic of that, having a great reverence for God. But what the problem with that can sometimes be is it gets watered down. Eh, God's out there. We get dulled by it. And we look and we say, well, he's, he's fearful. Yeah, I'm fearful of him, but he really doesn't you know, follow through on all of his stuff. Or is it looking and saying, wait, my God is an awesome God. And there is great dread in that because he is a God who judges impartially. There is a great sobriety to the fact that my God does see, that my God knows, and I want to be living up to my calling. So I'm going to walk with a genuine respect for the awesomeness of my God and allow that to impact how I practically make decisions and choices in my life. He says, do this through the time of your exile, the sojourning of your exile, as he he talks about. He's using that refugee terminology again that he used earlier in the chapter, reminding us this is in our home. So while you're here in this short time, live it out. Live out the way that God wants us to live because you're going to be living with him the rest of your life anyway. So he's looking and saying, have the perspective, recognize the temporary nature of our present life, and now we are better to live out our new life in this present world. Looking and saying, this is short. 80, 90 years is short in the scope of eternity. And God's saying, don't, you're facing hardships, you're facing trials, you're facing struggles, don't acquiesce and be conformed to the world. Don't give in to your former ways, but rather live righteously toward our great God. Live with that holiness and light. How do we know we can live this way? Peter's, Peter's like, I know you can do this. We can live holy. We can live righteously. It seems defeating. Am I the only one who's ever thought, uh, there's no way I can live holy. I can't be perfect. God's the only one who's holy, so why even bother trying? Maybe I'm the only one who's ever wrestled through that ethical dilemma in my mind. And yet Peter calls us to something that is far greater than we give ourselves credit for sometimes. We can't do it. Peter says, you can do it. How do I know that you can do it? He reverts back to our redemption. He goes back to what has happened. He says, because you are redeemed. He says, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your vein, your worthless heritage from before. He says, you were redeemed from that former heritage. And how were you redeemed? With something far more precious. The blood of Jesus Christ. We hold what? Silver, gold as precious. And yet Peter says that perishes. That goes by the wayside. But why can we live for righteousness? Why can we live for God? Because what we have been bought with is something that is precious to God. God did not just give up his son so that you could just get a get out of hell free card and then just do whatever you want. We have been bought and we have been bought with a price. So implied in the idea of redemption, of ransom, is that I was bought, I was redeemed from an old master, an old heritage, and now I have been redeemed and I have been bought and now I have a new master. Now I have a new father. Now I have a new director. He is the one who directs and leads and guides. 
He has bought me with something that is precious to him, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. As a lamb without blemish, a lamb without spot. Is he referring back to Exodus 12 and the Passover lamb? Possibly. Is he referring to Isaiah 53 when it talks about the lamb who is going to be led to the slaughter? Possibly. Either way we go at it, we're brought to those sacrificial pictures of a lamb who is holy and righteous and is slain to cover our sins. And God looks and says, I slaughtered my son so that you could be redeemed to me from your former ways so that you can live for me because I'm your new master. I am your new director. He goes on and he says, I know you can do this. Why? Because man's redemption through the Son was and is the plan of God. The, the blood of Jesus Christ was seriously not an afterthought. It wasn't like, a, oh no, Eve actually ate of the fruit. I think we got to do something. Maybe, hey Jesus, you want to go down and be sacrificed? It didn't happen that way. What does it say in the passage? For verily, was for, who fair, verily, talking about Christ, was foreordained before the foundations of the world but was manifest or shown in these last times to you. Before the world began, in eternity past, God said, this is going to be what is going to happen at a specific junction in history. My son is going to come as the redeemer for you and for me. He is going to step in and pay the price so that you can be redeemed, ransomed from the old heritage the old family, and brought into this new family. If God didn't think that we could live, why would he do that? It is a precious gift that has been given to us, and it is a compelling gift. Look in verse 21. He says, who by him do believe in God. We believe in God, and it is a result of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. He has made it possible. He has made it a way for us that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. He's returning back to his thoughts earlier in the passage. We're talking about we have a living hope. Why do we have? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Our hope is alive. We have this perspective long-term that God has made a way for us not only to enter into heaven, but to live this heavenly in this worldly place. He says it's compelling. It tells us that your faith and hope might be in God. It's for our sake. Do you notice that at the end of verse 20? He says, but was manifest in these times for you, for me. God just didn't leave Jesus up there and say, eh, we'll just let him, it'll, it'll be okay, they'll be fine. No, he allowed his son to come and to die, to be tortured, to be beaten, so that I would have a way from that old heritage to this new. And yet we look in our lives and we often reconcile and work in our minds, figure out ways to get back to the old way. And he says, it is through Christ that we are believers so that your faith and your hope are in your heavenly Father, that they're in God. He gives us the compelling evidence to say, make wise and godly choices. 
when we're faced with the moral and ethical dilemmas that we will continually be faced with in hard times. You can do this because your faith is in God and it is through Jesus Christ and your heavenly Father has revealed himself and said, this is how you do it. So we have to be intentional. We have to set our minds. We have to be looking mindfully into the word of God, being sober-minded, being girding, girding up our loins of our minds to be prepared to be able to give an answer. We need to be purposefully living up to our calling. And we need to be looking and saying, hey, I need to set my perspective on the future. The holy life to which we are called is a life in which we are trusting in God's promises, both present and future. Looking and saying, this is who God is. This is what he has promised. This is what he is going to do. And because of that, I am going to please him with my choices, with my decisions. So how do we make these decisions? As we go through ethical decisions in America today, but let's talk about for believers. We know unbelievers are doing it relatively speculatively, however the wind blows, whatever the popular poll shows. What are we supposed to do? Let's ask these questions. Does my decision or action conform to the character of God or does it conform to the old way? Is my decision or action a natural outcome of my new life in Christ? Or does it tend to go back toward that old way? This is my new life in Christ. This is what Christ has called me to. This is who I'm to be. And so I'm living. Yes, my friends don't understand that. Yes, my coworkers don't get that. But I'm going to live this way because this is what Christ has called me to do. And will my decisions or actions, will they stand up to God's scrutiny? As God looks at my rationale, as God looks at my decisions, as God looks at the, the, the choices that I'm going to make, that you're going to make this week, will they live up to his scrutiny? Because setting our hope completely on Jesus means that we reverently develop healthy minds and holy lives. Not healthy minds from a physical, from a spiritual. That we are to be increasing our knowledge, just as Jesus Christ did. Understanding God's word, and then fleshing that out, living it day by day, because he's called us to be holy. So like father, like son, let's go out this week and take the next step. It's not just going to happen overnight, but it's going to be the next step, and the next step toward being like our heavenly father.